Welcome, everybody, to the Leather Bound Podcast. Today, you are joining me, who is Ben, and him, who is Hunter. We are a podcast where two cousins talk about being better people through big books. Oh, no, no. Actually, (laughs) the show is about... We we like to call it an audio seminary on moral improvement via literary masterpieces from the greatest authors, contemporary and historical. Oh dear, because that's what Lord. it is. Hunter, you just lost both of our listeners. Well, you know, <laughs> I guess that means we're not going to listen to each other. So I'll just start reading, <laughs> and therefore, All right, perfect. Yeah. In the beginning, God created. Um, yeah. yeah, we're pumped you're listening. This is our first episode. If you notice, we actually just released an entire season. Mainly just so we're not rushed to read a new book every single week. We are going to be choosing a list of books that fit a certain theme. We're going to read them together and expound upon them. We think that reading the masterpieces, the most influential books of human history is extremely important. But we realize that not everyone has the time to do it. And some people don't even know how to start. So we'd like to help begin a conversation on some of these topics. So today, we have chosen a fantastic book called The Brothers Karamazov, or The Brothers Karamazov. Honestly, Hunter, I have no idea how to say at this point. Don't don't you, like, half-speak Russian? Well, half-speak is a strong statement, but yes, I do. Don't you double-speak in Russian? (laughs) Don't I (laughs) double-speak in Russian? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Yeah, I I know some Russian, um, which is intimidating because I know just enough Russian to pronounce all the words wrong. Um, but yeah, uh, <laughs> Karamazov would be probably the best way to say it. I think the title in Russian is Brati Karamazovi. So there's that. If anybody cares, um, it sounds good, but is it right? Who knows? Do they just end everything with a Y? No, that's plurals, my dude. So the brothers Karamazov, right? And so, so the last it, name not, becomes plural? It all becomes plural. It's a fun, it's a great language. Welcome Every to time... Leatherbound, a podcast where we give you lectures on Russian grammar for <laughs> exactly. several hours. We're so exactly happy right. you've joined us. Um, no, but we're, we're going to be, as I said, breaking this up into seasons. This is our first season. Hunter, tell the people, what is this season? What's the theme? Right. So like Ben said, um, we've been reading books, me and him together for a long time, which I'll get into after this. But it's been a really exciting uh, journey. I think we've both learned a lot. And we want to keep doing this book club that Ben and I do. But we thought one of the great things we could do as a part of that is kind of do some uh, teaching along with that, you know, showing that we've actually mastered some of the things we've learned. Um, and so with that idea, instead not to take our full focus away from the reading that we're doing, we want to do like a season together where we take several of the books we've read and kind of tie a central idea that runs through them and share them with the broader world. Um, yep. If nothing else, then just to practice uh, what we've learned and kind of making it fully there. Um, we kind of do it in three ways, you know, read, write, speak. And so that kind of gives you this this easy way to like absorb the information put it into a structured format and then share it with others, which is a great idea. Um, so this first season is going to be on seven books. Uh, we'll give you a little tease about that right now. Your first book tonight, brothers Karamazov, uh, by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Uh, we'll then jump into the moral landscape by Sam Harris, Jesus among secular gods by Ravi Zacharias. Fourth book is beyond good and evil by Frederick Nietzsche. Orthodoxy by GK Chesterton, 
the sixth one is Ordinary Men by that guy I can't remember. Because, uh, oh, yeah, he's a great dude. I really, really, really love everything Christopher R. Browning writes. Boom. <laughs> I'm good at this. I've always been great at this. Everybody said so. Uh, and then finally, Paradise Lost with... Uh, John Milton. And the whole kind of cadence is there is what Ben's already talked about. The theme of this season is being morally righteous is better than being right from an intelligence standpoint. And we'll kind of break down more what that means. Um, and it's important yeah. to note that this isn't a book review channel per se. <clears throat> Excuse me. We are going to be kind of breaking down what we see are the biggest points in the book, also the points that are most important to talk about in our cultural setting. So we could certainly do an entire podcast on just the book, The Brothers Karamazov, and we would probably have a blast doing it. But what we're going to do is try to take just a few points from each book. So that's what you can expect out of each episode. We're going to take some of the biggest themes, we're going to jump to our favorite parts in the book, and we're going to examine exactly why we think they're important and that's exactly what we're going to do tonight and that's how we actually got started with this hunter and i um we're we're cousins as i mentioned earlier and we both were at a point in our life where we wanted to learn more about god and we didn't know exactly what that means how do you learn about god it's a really complicated question that seems really simple do you read religious texts do we're both Christians. Does that mean we just study the Bible? Do, do we look outside of that? Is that even appropriate? And and we both decided mm-hmm. that there was truth to be found all over the place yeah. and that a lot of different people had a lot of smart things to say. And we didn't want to get in an echo chamber, not mm. saying that the Bible isn't sufficient, not saying anything like that, but saying that other people are smart too. And we wanted, if you noticed, the the curriculum, if you can call it that, goes back and forth. It goes back and forth from Sam Harris to Ravi Zacharias. You can't get any more different than those two individuals. So expect a lot of that out of this season. Expect back and forth. Expect debate. We're going to be comparing Sam Harris's arguments to C.S. Lewis at times. We're going to be comparing Richard Dawkins to Ravi Zacharias and we're going to be bouncing all over the place. And then we're going to be simply diving into some fantastic works of literature like we're going Mm. to do today. Yeah, that's, that's great, Ben. Yeah. And we kind of found each other in this time in our life where we both felt like, uh, our careers journeys were changing. Uh, you got out of a program that you were involved in. I left a job and we were both like, how do we, what are we are supposed to do with this time? We haven't been living our lives for like what we would even would consider were like the best ideals, so to speak. And so, and then we are like, we should really focus and try and learn as much as we can about the God. I love the way you put that. And we took the time to kind of identify books, both that we thought were about the Bible, uh, some literature that had to do with the Bible and books against it, as well as even books on like the problem of evil itself, which just seems to be like the constant, uh, problem that you see religion run into and have to deal Certainly. with. It, it was like, how do you deal with suffering? Uh, ordinary men is going to be yeah. a great look at that. And so I think we kind of did that and we kind of read those books and we learned a lot and we saw, and we, we didn't, uh, allow, you know, straw man arguments to, you know, define everything. We went and read the hard guys on the other side too, and yeah. took a look at that. And I think what you'll see from that whole journey is just this 
new perspective, this new foundation, and something that is completely grounded in biblical truth outside of the actual, you know, four corners of the Bible, if you will. You know, it's every really to some extent, it's all, it's all about the Bible. It's just not the same book. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, Great point. It's going to be interesting. Yeah. It really is going to be. And and speaking of someone who takes on difficult subjects, also Dostoevsky. Holy cow. If you've had, <laughs> <laughs> you're like, no, not at all. If you've had the pleasure of reading Dostoevsky, you will see that the guy doesn't go for the easy kill. He jumps right into anything he's talking about and, and really gets to the heart of it. And that is true even in the beginning of the book. So Hunter, let's jump into our content. Before we do that, um, or as we do that, let me give a the world's shortest summary just so people have some rough, rough idea of what's going on. And then please help me out and, and fill in anything I'm missing. I trust you, buddy. Go for it. The, the 10 million foot view is it's a story about a messed up family. Zooming in a little bit. Done. That's it. That's all there is to it. It's 700 and pages and a bound. lot of people not liking each other. <laughs> I will say my one criticism of the book is I would, I think it's like a 350 to 400 page book inside of a 700 page novel. Anyway, <laughs> some, some, like some Dostoevsky fans are going to come justifiably find me. Um, yeah. Of course, like me. So it's a book about a dysfunctional family. It's it's a dad. The mother isn't in the picture. She unfortunately died young. The There's a father whose name is Theodore. And Theodore has three boys. The oldest is named Dimitri. Dimitri is essentially synonymous with passion. He does everything way too hard. He does everything way too brashly. But he does it with kind of an open spirit. Next down, now by a different mother... You have Ivan. Ivan is synonymous with rationality and intellect in the coldest sense of the term, with, with no emotion, with no heart behind his intellect. He's the, probably the highest IQ character in the book and essentially mops the floor with anyone he debates. Below him, you have the protagonist, our main character, Alyosha. And, and Hunter, just another side note, a freaking Russian literature and having 17 names for each character, it took yeah. me so long to figure out that Alexei was also Alyosha. Yeah, and Dimitri. <laughs> that was a very and, painful uh, thing. Dimitri and, Mi- and Mitya are the same character. Mitya, yeah. that's the most different one. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a normal thing in Russian. You can have yeah. a lot of different names for a single name, but anyway. Yeah, so we kind of start the book... Um, with a with a quick overview of the family, and we mostly follow Alyosha around. What happens is Alyosha has decided to join a monastery. Alyosha is a likable character; everyone's a fan of him. Um, but he's kind of dumb. He seems to have a great heart, but he's also foolish. The author even says that he's a uh, fond of Alyosha, which is a hilarious thing to say about a character that you're actually writing. Alyosha mm. begins the story in a monastery, and quickly the the father who is over him tells him that he needs to leave due to some family issues and he needs to go deal with them. And the book really is a series of Alyosha wandering around, talking to various people in the village, trying to help and learn what he can. And that's essentially the the theme of the book. There's not an overarching um, plot line. 
that you can always ascertain moving forward. It sometimes feels like a, a collection of short stories that ties together really well into a narrative. So Hunter, how'd I do what I miss? No, you did a great job. I think, I think just at the, I mean, the problem with this story is like, there are so many fantastic characters that you just cannot cover in an hour. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think, I think you just have to, if you've read the story, we're going to leave them behind. You know, we're just not going to deal with them. And these are definitely the four main characters. I really think you could also consider uh, the other son. <gasps> Spoilers. What? But, but yeah, so I mean, like, there's there's so much in this uh, whole novel with all these characters. But yeah, it's mainly about this dysfunctional family and the all their conflict basically um, spews from... Mitya and their father, uh, Theodore, being attracted to the same woman in town and not being able to deal with that and from some very, very poor circumstances that make it appear as if Mitya has killed his father. Um, so, yeah, we it's a great read. It's fantastic. Ben's comment actually about the book appearing to be um, 300 pages of a novel is actually really interesting because I would argue the first 300 pages are almost the building block to like tell you who the characters it's almost like the uh he's setting up his argument like Mm. here's the characters here's who they are here's everything that they believe and what they um think and then the second half of the novel is essentially proving that through lived experience and so like the story to some extent only happens at this we're actually going to talk about it today happens after this one pivotal point in the book and everything before that is like um even you would agree ben like one of the most pivotal scenes that we won't talk about that today the grand inquisitor is really him building up the uh philosophy of all these characters and how he wants to like show this plot going forward so Anyway, and the only reason we're not covering the Grand Inquisitor for all of those fans out there because it's been done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's been done yeah. so many times. We'd love to, but it's been done. There's no new ground to cover. We're, yeah. we're going to try to focus on some other stuff. Yeah, exactly. So Hunter and I, th- this is truly a normal podcast in the sense that Hunter and I don't script anything out. The one thing we did script out is the three main points we want to hit today. And right. point one, I. I just adore this. It's it's fantastic. Point one is don't lie, especially to yourself. We first we see this said twice in the very beginning of the novel. So if you if you remember our protagonist Alexi or Alyosha, Alyosha goes to a monastery, and in that monastery, his elder, the father that's over him, the priest, is kind of famous in the town he's in. Um, I like to think of him as the Gandalf character, right? He's the he's the wise old divine help sage. That's that's who he is. And everything he says is so good that you just almost need to pause before you read it because there's not a word that comes out of his mouth that isn't pure gold. And this this priest, his name is Father Zosima. Zosima has invited all of Alyosha's family over to dinner to reconcile everything that's going, all the craziness that's going on within the family. So they're all showing up and in a show of fake piety, Theodore, the father, I don't know if I ever said his name, Theodore just makes an absolute butt of himself in front of the whole dinner party. He's being over the top, absolutely ridiculous. 
And he ends up blurting out, and father, how must I be saved? What must I do? And you can tell he's not being serious. He's trying to make a show. And father Zosimus' reply is freaking perfect. He, he says, well, first off, you know what you need to do, which is just off the bat phenomenal. And then he goes, get rid of your, get rid of your whorehouses, get rid of your brothels, get rid of your uh, bars and your taverns and yada, yada, yada. Um, stop robbing from people. But then he follows that with, but do not lie, especially to yourself. Hunter, I have some thoughts on this, um, but I'd love to pick your brain a little bit. Why? Father Zosim is obviously a, a fantastic character, and I, I, I think it's hard to find anything that he says that isn't fantastic. What makes this so worth saying at, at such a pivotal moment? Right. Um there's there's two answers to that. One is um, Dostoevsky uh, really only wrote f- what's considered his five great novels, um, and he wrote those near the end of his life after he'd written all his other works and everything like that. I think one short story is kind of considered in that pantheon as well. Um, the Brothers Karamazov was supposed to be this three-part story, uh, and these first part that we got essentially is his longest work and unfortunately although possibly not um dostoevsky was only able to complete this novel before he died um he died about three months i believe after completing this novel it's a great story actually he actually calls his kids and i can't remember if he was very sick or anything like that and he says basically he says by this time tomorrow or in two days from now i'm gonna be dead and he was right 100% 100% right. He died in in that timeline, whatever what? he gave. Yeah, so... Good, I he, did not know that. That's fascinating. Yeah, he just he just basically called him in and said, live good lives, be good children, do... And basically what Zosima's doing here and then died when he said he was going to. Um, so, you know, it's, it's hard to know all the things that Dostoevsky was aware of. Um, the other answer to that is... And I... You just read it here. It's just... So fantastic. What I'm trying to say is Zosima is essentially the sagely wisdom that Dostoevsky has collected within his lifetime, right? Mm. And so you're approaching this incredibly intelligent person who is basically predicting what would happen in generations to come in his work. And this is the wisest character in his book who's supposed to be wise. Like the stuff that that stuff that's said there is just going to be impactful just based on that idea alone. But I love what he says. Um, He says, above all, don't lie to yourself. The man who lies to himself and listens to his own lie comes to such a pass that he cannot distinguish the truth within him or around him, and so loses all respect for himself and for others. And having no respect, he ceases to love. And in order to occupy and distract himself without love, he gives way to passions and coarse pleasures and sinks to bestiality in his vices, all from continual lying to other men and to himself. Now, Ben, I love the fact that he takes the idea of lying to yourself and not being able to distinguish what's true all the way to someone who has no respect for himself and then doesn't have the ability to love anymore, right? And how he connects those ideas because if you lie and you're good at it, you won't notice when you're doing it. It comes natural. It's a natural reaction, right? And so if you know that you can't be trusted in that moment, subconsciously, why would you ever have respect for yourself? And if you can have 
this is such a weird idea. If you have no respect for you because you're evil, twisted in line, then everybody else can be hated too. Right. Because that, why would, there's no good in them if there's no mm. good in you sort of thing. And it's just this, there's so much said there without having to say that much. And that's what, how wisdom acts. And so there's just the fact that this phrase, and he tells you it right here is just packed with so much wisdom. And I also think near the end of his life, he just was doing nothing but trying to communicate that. So, um, but yeah, is there anything more that you think about that beyond that? Or what do you think about that idea? Yeah, there is a little more. Well, but first to play off of what you said, it, it really makes me think of that old famous quote, watch your, watch your thoughts because they become your words, watch your words sure. because they become your actions, watch your actions because they become your habits and your mm. habits become your character and your character mm. becomes your destiny. Mm. And I think that's so fantastic. And I'm going to loop that around in a second, but I actually took this to John 1, 1, which um, God says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And God equates himself with the truth, which means if you think that you are the person who can violate that, you are, the per- you are putting yourself above God. You are putting yourself above the divine. And if, if you're not a Christian, this works with Socrates. This works with most philosophers. Most philosophers recognized that there was some truth outside of ourselves. And whenever mm. we lie, we're saying we know enough. We're so intelligent that we can take that truth and warp it. And we can control the fallout. And yes. what's so wise about Zosima's warning is back to that watch your thoughts because they become your words you have to be careful because if you begin to think in lies, if you begin to speak in lies, you will become the sort of person who lies. And if mm. the, and if lying is putting yourself above God, that means you are now making yourself into the person that is above God. And you are not someone who can sustain that for a moment. Mm. So, yeah. yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of like good psychology done here, like on habit formation. Um, Ben, you're probably aware of this. The first time you ever swung a hammer, you sucked, right? Or anytime you're trying to do something, learn. I think driving is like the perfect one for this. You're aware of everything, like to a hyper level. Yes. And you've basically the right hemisphere of your brain is activated. And it's like paying attention and wanting to learn all this stuff and like really, really trying to understand what's going on. But then as you kind of learn how, you know, the car starts and, the feel of your car and how it turns when you turn the steering wheel, you begin to like not pay as attention to much or have a little routines that you can run to like take care of things. And so what's actually happening is that activity is getting mapped more and more to the left side of your brain and becoming crystallized um, and like becoming really specific memories and motor functions. And then eventually you get to the point where you're driving and like, you don't ever look at the speedometer. You don't ever, you really pay attention more to your surroundings than anything in the car. And that kind of tells you how to drive. And like, if someone was to stop and ask you, hey, buddy, how do you drive a car in the middle while you're driving a car? It would actually take you a little while to answer because you're actually not thinking about driving a car. Mm -hmm. You're just doing the action. And you'll actually see the activity map to the back of the brain near where we have more of our uh, autonomic problems processes going on the ones we don't have to consciously think about such as digestion and heart rate and things like that yeah and so like if you become really good at lying to yourself you may not be able to notice it 
And so, and it's not just that sounds cute and it sounds good. There's actually like some physiology involved in that and biology. So it's like, be really careful because you can get to this place, you know, just like you're saying where you, you cannot handle manipulating all that truth. It will come up to catch or it will come up to bite you, so to speak. So, yeah. Boom, man. That was awesome. Uh, Do you want to jump into our second point, which is also kind of the central point of our season? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Um, so this is being righteous is better than being right slash intelligent. And we mean me be by being right in an argument. And the obvious place, Ben, to take this is to the, um, oh, the Grand Inquisitor, right? I think that's the perfect thing that does that. And we're not going to do that at all um, because it's too obvious. Um <laughs> But let's talk about that idea a little bit before we kind of go back to Dostoevsky. Um, I think there is a lot of... There are some things that you don't want to know the answer to, right? Um, And there are objective questions that you can find answers to, such as, how beautiful is my partner compared to other people in the world? You actually don't want to answer that question because the objective answer to that question is something that is A, bad for society, and B, something that you (laughs) actually don't believe, right? Um, And there's also the objective question is like, you know, in objective reality, let's keep it, let's keep ourselves really specific here, is life worth living, right? Mm. Well, there's a lot of rational pathways to saying, no, it's not. Right. And so there is, there are some axioms um, that we take in life that have to be true in order for us to live it. Um, This is true in the United States Constitution. We hold these truths to be self evident that all men are created equal. Right. It basically is saying before we even get to the starting line, everybody agrees on this. Right. Um, It's, and, how do those ideas get a bedrock or a foundation by a belief in God? Right. And so the idea a little bit in this, it's better to be righteous than it is to be right or intelligent is sometimes intelligence has this strange ability to actually destroy the things that we hold the most dear, Hmm. Um, believing that we are married to the most beautiful person in the entire world, or we're dating the most beautiful person in the entire world. And that's why we say to me, because it's a nod to the fact that we know it's a, lie even though it's not a lie it's like this is kind of an interesting idea fiction is almost fiction is not lies you'll hear some authors say that it's not lies it's 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 like capturing truths that are more true than the than the objective world absolutely yeah i think Um, that's why we it's how, how we talk to our kids you know, mm. you don't talk to a child with hard logical proofs. You tell them stories. It's why kids' books are supposed to have good morals to them. It's mm. like if you read an amoral children's book, it might be nice, but the real good ones that have stuck around for generations are things that teach your kids something that you couldn't actually have taught them, which mm. is really a bizarre concept. It's why religious teachers, especially Jesus, Jesus is famous for teaching in parables. And supposedly, he's literally the embodiment of truth. The embodiment of truth came to earth and told a bunch of stories. What's up with that? He was able to say things that were... 
he was able to say more truth through a story than he was able to say just speaking straight, which is a fascinating thing to get my head around. But mm. so with this one, Hunter, I think the character we first think of is Ivan, of course, because we're talking about being correct. And Hunter, I think the first place that I think about this in the book is kind of obviously Ivan. Ivan, as I said in the intro, he's the smartest character. He is definitely the most well-spoken. There, there's this one hilarious scene where Ivan is arguing for a position he doesn't even believe in just because he likes it. And there's one of the most pivotal scenes is where Ivan describes a truly horrible event that happened to a little girl to mm. his little brother, Alyosha, the protagonist. And it's a real at the event, end of, actually. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, not just in the, like, oh, that's something that actually happened. That was in the newspaper. Um, oh, and Fyodor Dostoevsky mm. actually just grabbed it and made it Ivan say it, essentially. Like, it's an actual real event okay, that kind of shot the Russia. people what it is. Yeah, um, exactly. Basically, there was a, a horrible couple who had a young daughter who was about seven. And for whatever reason, they got upset with her and on a Russian winter's night, locked her in the outhouse. And they found her the next day frozen on her knees with her hands together praying. It is, oh my gosh, it's it's unbelievable to talk about. And mm. it's not pleasant to read. And it's, it's even more not pleasant knowing that it's true. Gosh, yeah. that's so awful. And, and Ivan's point with all of that is basically to say, what God would make a world where that could happen? Mm-hmm. Which is a because Hunter, Ivan how does Alyosha so, respond? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. He, he, yeah, that's a great, that's a great question too. Uh, he, he says, I don't have any problem with the idea of God. I, I bring him on. All we can have God all you want. I just have one problem. How could God be that cruel? And that's that is what Ivan I basically takes all his critiques to. He doesn't try to disprove God. He doesn't try to make any argument that says, well, you know, you know, like. It's clear that the whole world came from evolution. It's not that he's trying to make that like objective argument. He actually attacks it at that level of like, there's no way a God could be this hateful, which is painful. Um, Hunter, actually, can I say Alyosha's response? Yes, please. <laughs> hold on, hold on. Let me get into character. Okay, I'm ready. Uh, That's perfect. Scene. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's... actually Alyosha's response. Like, <laughs> verbatim. <laughs> No, and it's such great writing because Mm. what he could have done is turned Alyosha into this apologetic genius and been like, well, actually, here's a theodicy for you. Mm. And that's what you would expect because Dostoevsky was a Christian. And what's Mm. so friggin' compelling is Alyosha has no idea what to do. However, Alyosha ends up on top. I don't mean he triumphs over his brother. I mean, at the by the end of the book, Ivan is in ruins and Alyosha has been exalted. And mm. it is so fascinating. This is a little bit of a tangent for me, Hunter, but my big takeaway from the book is what's up with Alyosha? What is he doing? I was kind of confused and almost irritated with him for like three quarters of the book. I, I just didn't get what was going on. And I think that's because... I, I made I made a silly comparison of Father Zosima and Gandalf, and mm-hmm. 
it's it's an archetypal figure, the divine supernatural helping guy, right? It's it's Master Ugwe, it's a uh, Dumbledore, it's you name right. it, it's that guy. And in my head, I had put that guy inside of a box. And that box was people I'll never be like. It was these ethereal, supernatural, perfect humans. And I'm just Ben. Like, there's no way I'm ever going to be like that. And mm. what I, m- my favorite scene in the entire book is the very last few pages. Because basically, w- without getting too much into it, there was, there's a boy whose father died. And he comes to Alyosha at the very end of the book, at the end of his whole long journey, after even Father Zosima has passed away. And there's all this despair. And the little kid comes to Alyosha asking basically just questions. And Alyosha starts answering in this quirky, humble way. And it's right at the end of the book where I realized, holy cow, he became Father Zosima. And it blew my mind because Father Zosima was also pictured in this weird, humble, quirky way. He didn't respond Mm. the way you expected someone like that to respond. There are these moments when people are like giving him these big critiques and arguments and he just gets down on his knees and kisses their feet. And in the beginning Mm. of the book, you think, oh, because he's so wise, he knows that that's the perfect thing to do. And by the end of the book, you go, nope, that's because he had no idea what to do, but he was humble. Mm. And that was my big takeaway, man, is how do you become the hero how do you become Gandalf? How do you become Master Ugwe? You become them through humility and mm. because, be, not in spite of, because Alyosha didn't try to give his brother an incredible answer. Mm. That's mm-hmm. how he became a hero. And yeah. it's such good writing. It blows my freaking mind and it's honestly something I aspire to. What do you think about that big tirade, bud? No, that's that's actually perfect. I actually think that's what the book is attempting to like explain to in some way is that it's not about having the best argument. It's not about winning every fight. It's not about um solving everything. It's not that's not the exact way, you know, to to in some sense receive enlightenment. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a little bit of a new agey way to put on it, but Possibly a better way to put it is is to say salvation, right? And yeah. I think what you see, or sanctification, I think Alyosha, basic, if you read the story, you basically can look at Alyosha's life and see that process take place. Um, and and I think, I think, you know, even by the end of the book, Zosima is probably a more intelligent, more capable figure than Alyosha gets to by the end. Certainly. And... I think the great part about that is it shows even Alyosha can achieve that status to some extent and can achieve that life that's worth living and meaningful and makes the lives around him better. Um, so it, it, it's a good insight. So one of the things that we see with like characters like that is the moment that kind of coalesces all of that, right? The moment where um, uh, Elijah gets a vision right? Or Isaiah hears from the Lord, right? Mm. Um, these kind of pivotal scenes. And one of these actually happens to Alyosha as well. And I think it's one of, I think it's one of the best written parts of the book. Um, Father Zosima dies. He dies about halfway into the book and he explains, and he dies in a pretty, um, humiliating way. He begins to rot almost immediately, which 
it's hard to tell if that's just gross and people don't like the smell or if it's actually a cultural thing that like, oh, if you're holy, so to speak, you're not supposed to rot that quickly. Um, I think it's a little bit of both. And and it really, really shakes Alyosha's faith. Um, and he almost goes and commits a huge sin, but his desire to help and love people keeps him from doing that. And so we find him at the end of that crazy day where he's almost given up on everything he's believed into this point. He's sitting in a pew at church and one of the brothers is in there reading, um, reading about Christ's first miracle and about wine, about him turning water into wine. And as this is happening, Alyosha's praying and he's going in and out of consciousness or he's seeing a vision. It's a little difficult to tell. It's like, is he nodding off and having a dream? And you'll actually see this is something Dostoevsky plays with is the, is like, what is a dream and what is a vision? And how do you know you're having one and not the other? And he's constantly playing in that fairy tale ground. Um, And so he has this vision of Zosima and Zosima is telling him from heaven that they're having a great time, that they are celebrating and that everything is wonderful. And Alyosha wakes up and he goes out into the street and he just has this moment where he just realizes what life is worth and what, and what it means to have to live this righteous life. And it just has to be read just because of what, what uh, Dostoevsky says here is just better than I can do it justice. So as he standing in the middle of the street, it begins, Alyosha stood, gazed, and suddenly fell upon the earth as though mowed down. He did not know why he embraced it. He could not have told why he longed so irresistibly to kiss it, to kiss it all. But he kissed it, weeping, sobbing, and watering it with his tears, and vowed passionately to love it, to love it forever and ever. Water the earth with the tears of your joy, and love those tears, echoed in his soul. What was he weeping over? Oh, in his rapture, he was weeping even over those stars, which were shining to him from the abyss of space, and he was not ashamed of that ecstasy. There seemed to be threads from all those innumerable worlds of God linking his soul to them, and it was trembling all over in contact with other worlds. He longed to forgive everyone and for everything and to beg forgiveness, oh, not for himself, but for all men, for all and for everything. And others are praying for me too, echoed again in his soul. But with every instant, he felt clearly, and as it were, tangibly, that something firm and unshakable as that vault of heaven had entered his soul. It was as though some idea had seen the sovereignty of his mind, and it was for all his life, forever and ever, he had fallen on the earth a weak boy, but he rose up a resolute fighter, and he knew and felt it suddenly at the very moment of his ecstasy, and never, never all his life long could Alyosha forget that moment. Someone visited my soul in that hour, he said afterwards, with firm faith in his words. It's beautiful. It's absolutely thunderous. And it makes you beg to have a moment like that in your own life. It does. Wow, that's so true. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's weird because it like, you, and I think this is true of you, Ben, when I read that, what I want more than anything is a moment in my life that I can point to and say, that was when I decided to be a fighter. If <laughs> That sort of makes sense. And I'm just stealing the word used there. I'm not necessarily saying that's the perfect word, but stood, fell a boy and stood a resolute fighter. It's like, man, I want that moment. You know, I want that instant in my life where I no longer doubt about what it is I stand for anymore. Yeah, I was actually thinking about something like that 
recently, not not exactly what you were saying. I was actually, I got lost in a train of thought regarding why milestones are so important to people. We commemorate these big moments. We're recording this right before Valentine's Day, right? And that's mm. supposed to be a big romantic milestone for couples. And sure. I'm getting invited to weddings these days. And I still have friends in college who are graduating. And, you know, they'll send you an invitation. They want you to come to this event. And wh- why do those events mean anything is, mm. is something I kind of just spent some time thinking about. Because it is so important for us to commemorate those moments, to to celebrate and remember and it's, I mean, it's why the 4th of July is a thing, right? We, we literally mm. set aside an entire day to be like, hey, and this is the day where we all cook hot dogs and get pumped about America being awesome. Mm. It, there's something about significant milestones that's worth remembering. I, I can't, I haven't flushed it out yet, but mm. something definitely worth thinking about. Yeah, it's like they're, it's like they're patterns that you get to share with others. Oh, right? I love that. Huh? It's like it's like you know, like my wedding is important because all the weddings that came before it were important. And everything it symbolizes mm-hmm. is in that too. You know what I'm saying? It's like yeah. I love that verse that faith is like the evidence for the things unseen. And it's like your wedding is almost like a declaration that weddings into the future matter. You know what I mean? <laughs> to something and because That's really good you have that faith today. It's almost like the proof of what it is to some extent. Um, and I know that's not exactly how all that ties together, but that's kind of like where that sp- that lives in my, my brain. And I, I think it's something to that, you know? And so with that said, I hope that if you don't have that moment in your life, you find it. Cause you know, I can remember, I can remember the, not exactly the, well, I can remember, you know, wrestling with stuff my entire life and finally getting answers to it and what that means. And I, you know, it, there, there really is nothing like it, Ben. Um, and and I love, and I love the milestone thing too. Cause I think in some way it's kind of tied to that, like the milestone in your life where you decide to be a man, quote unquote, you know, and I know that's not exactly what's happening there with, uh, uh, Alyosha. It's more like salvation more than anything, I think. Yeah. Um, or sanctification. And, and it's hard for me to tell what's going on there. Just because I've known a lot of people who have had really gradual inclines in terms of mm-hmm. maturing and growing up and, and becoming a man or becoming a woman. And I would say if if you're thinking to yourself right now, man, I don't know when that moment was. I'd just been growing steadily. Just pick one. Just you can look back at your life and you can look at when you were five and you go, okay, I wasn't then. And maybe you're 25 and you can go, I am now. It doesn't exactly matter the specific moment and getting it right. It just matters that you recognize that what's black has now become white. And I think the Christian religion does a phenomenal version of talking about this. It it literally says when you become saved, you pass from death to life. And the, the epistles continually talk about an old self and a new self, which is exactly what we're talking about in terms of Alyosha. He went Mm. down to the dirt and, his in his old self but he rose up something new something that was ready to take on challenges that he never thought were a thing it would it it truly was like a new Alyosha was born out of that moment which yeah I love that and I think one of the things that's interesting is like it's not salvation I keep wrestling with that as we talk right it's not Mm -hmm. like he gets saved in that moment like 
Alagiosha was a monk. He believed all this stuff and felt and did it. You know, it's like, it's almost like he believed he got, like a boy though. That's important. It is important. And I think it matters. Um, but I think like he, he finds his purpose to some extent in that. Moment. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's his spiritual gift is clear. It's like the revelation thing about the white stone with a name on it. Like it's, it's, it's a little bit yeah. stranger of a moment. I remember in 2019, I think is when this, this moment happened for me. I looked at my wife and I said, I think meaning may require obsession. And in that moment, it kind of all clicked for me what I had to do, wow. you know, in my own life. You know what I mean? And yeah. I was like, Wow. And th- that has some specific relevance to like some things I've, I- I've been doing since then. But, you know, I think at that moment it just became obvious to me what needed to happen. But I also think there's something just interesting here with the whole vision thing too, that is just kind of separate from anything I've experienced in my own life. But, um, who knows, you know, who knows how all that stuff works, but I love, I love the mixture of dream and vision right there uh, as someone who does not dream a lot it's always a really interesting aspect of any story to me but um i guess to put a bow on this and if you got something to say please do but i think what this part of the story does such a great job of is showing you that vibrancy that meaning to life doesn't reside in a formula you know it re- it res- it resides in something of it resides in dealing with the world as it is, right? The the just the true experience of living, if that sort of makes sense, and the force beyond that. I love the connection at that moment where it's like all the worlds of God. You know, it's like it's not just the majesty of here, but it's the majesty of everything, and the majesty okay. of everyone in that moment hits him. Um, and so here here's here's the subtle argument, or here's the argument of season one, and I think a, a great argument to learn. Uh, in life, if life does have that kind of meaning that we're talking about, um, it transcends logic. It transcends reasoning. And it's not that it, reasoning can't be used to help get you there, but it it is a step beyond it. It is faith. Um, anyway. Man, got, I freaking love that. Um, <laughs> and if you're, if, if you don't know us personally, what I really hope you didn't just hear is Hunter say, so buy into whatever ideology you like, because we're going to spend Great. a lot of time talking about how that's <laughs> not at all what we mean. And Hunter, I do we, we do need to move on to point three. But before we do, I got to ask you this one big question that I've really been excited to ask you is everyone is born into a belief system and you can use the argument to anyone. Just have faith into your belief system. Mm-hmm. You, Dimitri could have said his way of life was right. Um, Ivan could have said his way of life was right, but Alyosha's was actually right. And if you're Dimitri, if you're Ivan, if you're any any of the other characters in the world, how do you pursue righteousness if you don't know what righteousness is? Because mm. wouldn't that require Humility. intellect to get you there? Yeah, fair, fair, fair point. <laughs> yeah, but no, I think I think I think there's also an argument there for for what you're saying is intellect. You know, there is some reasoning there, honestly. And this is kind of 
I don't mean to sidestep this in an unmeaningful way, but I really think the other six books are going to continue to answer mm. that question. That's a good uh, point. as we go through the as we go through the moral landscape uh, and Jesus among secular gods. I think we're actually going to really start to address that problem, and may, maybe that's why you're asking it because you're just a great podcast host, man. But <laughs> those darn listeners just got to keep on listening. Exactly right, <laughs> but I really think we're gonna. I don't. I think this is going to sound a little funny. You know, Dostoevsky is obviously uh, trying to convince you that rationality isn't all there is, but he's really not trying to convince you of the irrational pass to that meaning. What am I trying to say? He's not making an argument for which religion you should believe. That is not the course of his book. He is a Russian Orthodox, you know, uh, person, and that is his that is his argument is that is true, and not all this, uh, and not all the wild not necessarily wild, but all the rational answers to life. That's kind of what he's, that's kind of what he's saying here. Um, but yeah, so I think we'll get to that as we continue. Um, one of the great things about learning that righteousness is better than intelligence is you come to this third and final point, which is found in Christianity and is such a high meaning idea that I think for the first couple of months that I learned this idea, um, I still pray this every morning um, since I've discovered it for my own life, as well as the the lying thing as well. Um, and I think it's such a fantastic idea because it is actually it's it's concretely stating um, what the crucifixion actually was and what that action really was, and it is what every Christian needs to be living out in their life. And it's this idea that. You, Christian, and every human being alive is responsible for the sins of mankind. Um, Dang it, Hunter. I thought you were going to do what you always do when we talk about this and say, I am responsible for the sins of mankind. Then I was going to be like, dang it, Hunter. Now we have to kill you. It was was going to be a whole (laughs) thing and you ruined my joke. (laughs) I dodged that. You had to explain Um, it too well. (laughs) I'm sorry. There's this wonderful... So, to put a really quick note on where this comes in. Uh, Zosima tells this story when he's dying about his younger brother who uh, dies young and he has a sickness, but during this entire time he has this sickness, um, his younger brother begins to just have these weird visions and weird ideas, you know, that don't seem to make sense. And he says this, uh, says this to his mother one morning, mother, my joy, he would say, There must be servants and masters, but if so, I will be the servant of my servants. You should recognize that language. The same as they are to me. And another thing, mother, every one of us is guilty towards all men of all sins, and I more than any. That statement has to be more and more your approach to every person you interact with as a Christian. It is the only reason that you, it is the only way that you can even begin to imitate Jesus Christ and what he stands for. Um, but Hunter, I'm not that bad. Uh, obviously, I'm not actually making that but what point. Are, I'm, w- but what, what about if, all the other people? Yeah, some of them are really bad. But Hunter, I'm not that bad, right? Um, what do you say? I that? think that's a that is a great point, Ben. Um, and I'm not going to read from it, but there's a whole scene where um, Father Zosima later on in his life basically challenges another man. Um, to duel him and 
essentially says, how could he be so cruel? How could he be so evil as to want to kill somebody else? And if only he had tried a little harder, if only he had seen, you know, from that person's perspective a little more, if only he had tried to do this and all he thought about all his guilty actions that led to that moment. And it said he came to the same conclusion his bro- his younger brother did when he was young is that he was indeed guilty for he was indeed not guilty. That's an important clarification. He was responsible for the sins of mankind. And I think I think that I that that word there responsible matters a lot because it's one thing to impart blame, so to speak, to um, to a group of people, but it's one thing to say that you played a part in that person's corruption, right? And you did that every time you didn't you you did that every time you sinned, right? Every time you missed the mark, every time you didn't measure up to the full full ideal of what we have in Christ, right? That is that is when you didn't that is when you contributed to the sins of the rest of mankind. Hmm. I think one of the greatest images of this idea is not, is not Adam and Eve, but is Cain, right? Cain is the first human being who has the knowledge of what he's doing is wrong, right? Who knows what evil is and gives into it willingly. And I think the reason we see, this is a little gross, but the reason we see that sexual language used at the beginning between um, uh, Cain and, you know, what's supposed to be like Satan, right? That it's kind of talked about like a feral cat, right? Is because it is the birth of something new, right? Is is because it is something new that's being produced. And like, it's that same spirit that animates us when we do these nasty things and spills out into mankind too, you know? And I think, I think you have to be, even if you, you just have to be so guarded against what it is you do because it has effects beyond what you're able to see. And it's, it's, God's call to himself to offer up his life as a sacrifice to that sin. It's like, you don't have anything better to do with your time than that, man. So Hmm. get busy about it. Um, Dude, I have a a really big um, pleasure of, call it mentoring, call it discipling, I don't know. Um, But I'd hang out with these three middle school boys, um, usually about once a week. And we, we usually were reading the Bible together, we're reading a book together. And right now we're studying men of the Bible. We're, we're kind of just mm-hmm. going through different pivotal men. And obviously we started with Adam and we read um, the story together and a fascinating, really cool piece of the story that a bunch of authors have pointed out. Um, but I didn't grow up knowing was in the language as w- right after Genesis two or excuse me, Genesis three says that Eve ate the apple. It immediately follows and says, and she gave some to her husband who was with her. Which is a, a different way than I grew up hearing the story. I, I grew up hearing it. Adam was like off in some far part of the garden. Eve was alone with the snake. But Adam was just standing there. And one of the boys looks up and goes, man, I would have slapped the apple out of her hand. No way I would have <laughs> let that happen. And I, so I love those guys. They're fantastic kids. Um, but I just laughed to myself and thought of this point and just was mm. just immediately thought, oh man, we've got a long way to go because that kid, we meet in a church. That kid was sitting in $45 pants with, with a nice new backpack, um, in, in a nice church that was built and set up by someone else 
that he's mm-hmm. never met because it was so many years ago and he spent mm-hmm. so many years being uh, ch- taught and trained there and he's had so much given to him that he thinks that it is his own moral resilience and not all of these amazing things that he has been handed. And mm-hmm. 1 Corinthians 4 says this perfectly. It says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if mm-hmm. you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? It's the exact same thing. It's you don't have anything that wasn't given mm-hmm. to you. Are, are you the self-made millionaire? Great. That's amazing. I'm, I'm proud of you. Did you create the economic conditions under which you live? Did you set up a capitalist system that enables millionaires? Did you fill in the blank? You didn't. Mm. You, d- you aren't responsible for the things that you have like we think we are. Mm. And Hunter, there's this old Gnostic idea of a divine spark. And Jordan Peterson turned me on to that term. And I got really curious about it. So I looked into it. And it turns out it's, it's from the Gnostics. And I'm going to use it in a little bit of a different way than the Gnostics used it. But essentially it means there's something divine inside of you. Now, they would take that sentiment way too far into what that means. But I think every Christian agrees with that idea of, you know, you're made in the image of God, so to speak. Right. And just like you didn't create the economic conditions for your success, if you have the divine spark, every bit of your capacity for good does not come from you. So this Mm -hmm. is kind of the opposite side to what we're talking about, Hunter. We're talking about how we're responsible for the sins. I think an immediate counter to that in people's heads is going to be, but I do a lot of good. And it's like, mm-hmm. not really. You think you do. You've been given a yeah. lot. I think that's a great point, Ben. I also think the the other side to that is, okay, you do do a lot of good. Have you fixed mankind? <laughs> yeah. You know, and I think, and I think that's the, you know, I, I have a theory that there are, um, several covenants in the Bible, right? Um, Abrahamic, you know, Adam and Eve, Noah, um, so on and so forth. You know, there's Moses, right? There's all these different pieces. And even now we have the church, right? Yeah. And I think, um, I even think when Jesus came, there is like almost like two things happening there. Like, I think there is, you can accept me as your king and I will rule and it will be great if you just do that and believe or you cannot and I'll go and I'll pay the penalty for all men, mankind's sins. Like I have this belief that every covenant that God gave us was a real deal that we could have taken and it meant and it was true and he meant he meant it. But then he also circumvented it knowing we wouldn't take them. Right. Mm-hmm. He circumvented our evil to some extent. Um, and he did that to show us that all the different covenants that he provided, only he was able to bridge the path to himself, right? Um, And so I think that's a great idea. My point being is, now that we live in the era of the church, you know, I think there is still this one huge thing that we've been given, which is to prove that we love one another, right? And I find us struggling with that so much and you see so much infighting in churches and you Mm. see people saying like so-and-so talks too much and you know what i just don't want to deal with their problems anymore i have enough on my own and it's like do you know why the church exists 
do you know why it even came to be? It's because one person, it's because God decided that it was worth dealing with all of your sins and to pay for them. And it's like every moment of your life, live it like that. Live it in that spirit and in that humility. And I don't do it and nobody does it, but that that's the call. And that's this idea, right? At the same time. Um, and I think, I think that's why there is revelation. I think that it is why Jesus comes back with a sword in his mouth is because, you know, it doesn't, we don't live up to that standard and we need final judgment and final mm-hmm. redemption to, so to speak. Um, and so I, I really, really strongly encourage, um, and I, I just, you know, you might have thought you were getting into Dostoevsky podcast, and now you're getting all this theology, but it's Dostoevsky. You know what you're getting into, um, <laughs> you know. But but I really, really strongly encourage people to, like, dive down into that and really mm. mean it, and mean it like the characters in this novel mean it to some extent. I know that's a weird thing to say, but that's kind of, that is the argument of the novel. Um, and so, yeah, I love what you said, too, about, you know, um, uh, you know, can't you be good enough? And the answer is clearly there's no way. Um, so, cause the, the task before us is so monumental and cheat sheet. We know it doesn't pan out. You know, we know we don't, we know we don't fix the problem and that God's already given us that answer. And that's a great thing to know. That's what the cross was to some extent. Um, you know, so you can act in humility there and realize you don't have to solve it all, which once again, message of the book. Okay. I don't know how many times I'm allowed to say boom, after you finish a rant. Um, but that is what I feel is the appropriate response. Hunter is counting on his fingers <laughs> for those of you who cannot see. Man, that was know. awesome. What a way to take us home. Um, Hunter, I think that about wraps it up. Let me just throw it over to you real quick. Anything else? Uh, no, I'm good, dude. Thank you so much. I think this was a great start to this, and I really uh, appreciate you taking the time to think through this and put it together. I think it was awesome. Dude, right back at you, man. I'm I can't wait. We've for the listeners, we actually read these books um a couple years back and we're going back through them because we thought this podcast would be important and we're going to drop this as a full season. Uh so feel free to listen to the rest if you enjoyed this. You can reach us on social media maybe by the time we've released these. Honestly, we have no idea. Until that point, please join us again. I'm Ben That other one is Hunter. We are the Leather Bound Podcast, a podcast where two cousins talk about being better people through big books. Have a great night, day, or afternoon thing, I guess, and we'll talk to you next time. See you guys. Bye.